Hello and welcome to this end of year episode of Superhero Ethics. Friends, this is just about the end of 2023 and Paul Hoppy has joined me to talk about a year in review. This isn't Star Wars, so it's a lot harder to talk about just the year in review for this podcast since we've pretty much branched out from superhero movies to include sci-fi, fantasy, chess, karate, books, video games. So I think more, it's more. It's less going to be about like what were themes that were explored in media this year, as what were the themes that we kept seeing popping up and that we were kind of drawing a lot of and kind of reviewing. Like you know, so I think a lot of it is going to be about the media of this year, but especially with the strike, there was a lot of t- attention to media from other years. And the funny thing is, Paul messaged me a couple of days ago as we were planning for this, and said. You know, hey, have you watched Blue Beetle yet? And I hadn't. I'd forgotten that it had been that it had come out. It was one of a number of movies that I didn't see because it came out during the strike. And that's something we're going to talk about a good deal today. But so as part of that, um, and and Paul mentioned that you know I didn't have to watch it, but that it was going to be relevant to a lot of the topics he wanted to talk about. And I then watched the movie and realized that I was really relevant to a lot of things I wanted to talk about. And so we're going to kind of use that movie as a framing device to talk about big issues from 2023, Um, particularly because one of the major things that I really put together this year that has always been a theme, but I really have kind of started to narrow in on as a major theme in the media I'm interested in is almost completely not a part of Blue Beetle. So even though like, it's, it's sort of like everything goes to either zero or a hundred. So there's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about. Um, you do not have to have seen Blue Beetle to understand all this, but we will be giving you spoilers from that. So if that's a deal breaker, um, I would check it out. It's on Max. It's, uh, yeah, it's on Max. Probably lots of other ways to get it. It is a, it's a movie. Um, and we're not going to make movie. this a review podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say this about it. The best way I think to understand it is that they wanted to do, you know, what's kind of been being done a lot of let's take your standard superhero template and then put it into a different context. In this case, the context of uh, uh, a uh, in this case, the context of a young Latino man and his family who are uh, all Mexican immigrants. And I think they did a fantastic job of creating characters, of really, I mean, I'm I'm not that Latin A, but like building that whole world in such phenomenal, interesting ways. Every family member is well developed and just the themes of family are so well done. And there's a lot of other things that they cover so well. And I think they put so much time and effort into that that they forgot to write a superhero movie. <laughs> and so they just rely on every trope you could see. And so the superhero aspects of it are completely predictable in ways that I think would have made it a really bad movie if it weren't just so gosh darn fun to watch. And I wasn't being so blown away by how much I loved all the characters. Um, Paul, would you say that's an accurate description of... Uh... Pretty much, yeah. I would say it's like a stencil, right? Like they have like yeah. a superhero movie stencil. And then within, you know, they kind of like put their outline with that, just with a pen within the stencil. And then like within that stenciled outline, they put um, a bunch of characters who I don't feel the characters themselves were very well developed by the writing. I feel Mm -hmm. like just the actors, uh, just pretty much every one of the actors 
except maybe for Susan Sarandon. Like, Mm -hmm. I felt actually brought a lot to those characters that, like, wasn't necessarily in the script. Like, I I was thinking of checking, like, should I see whether this was was written during the writer's strike? I'm like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was done. Mm -hmm. But, and and I, I don't mean that so much as an insult to the writer, but, like, it just, it feels like, it really feels like the cast brought a lot, you know, and they kind of yeah. had to, um, but I'm glad they did, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so I, I feel like it works, even though the story is like, the funny thing though is for me, like a lot of the movies that I was going to talk about, um, and a lot of things that I've been experienced, that I've been experiencing as like a viewer in the, the relatively limited amount of stuff that I've watched this year, um, a lot of it, the plot, I'm just like, yeah, I really liked the movie, except the plot just wasn't doing anything for me. <laughs> yeah. And this includes, like, you know, uh, you know, movies that are basically deemed great, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, where I was like, could could we just, like, watch them at the business more instead of, like, have this yeah. whole multiverse thing and, like, across the Spider-Verse, where I was like... Can we just like hang out at at the you know at the cookout instead of like mm-hmm. always you know be doing all this multiverse stuff and and Loki where I was like can we just hang out with the characters instead of doing all this multiverse the thing about the Blue Beetle is there was no multiverse so that was there nice. was no multiverse that no was time really travel you know <laughs> I was like oh it's nice to see yeah. a superhero story where it's like it really is just like that original stencil not the newer stencil that has the multiverse and a bunch of stuff that, that's also you know, very true that's yeah. also very true yeah I think one thing I was thinking about as you were saying that is I kind of feel like there's two ways to approach this there's the we want to make a superhero movie. And so we're going to use that as a way to, like, we're going to, by setting it in a new context, whether that's like a new background for the character or a new time or a new place, we're going to make an interesting statement about superhero movies. Where I felt like this was actually like, let's just tell a movie about a really interesting family and family dynamics in the midst of difficult things. Oh, hey, someone will give us hundreds of millions of dollars if we make it a superhero movie. Sure, let's do that. Mm-hmm, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, this felt very much like someone was like, what if we did Encanto live action without the music, but with more super, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, it very much in that kind of a way. Um, so I'm going to take a guess and we'll, we'll mention details from the movie, but I think we'll kind of, you know, let's kind of get into some of the overall themes. One thing I know that you have talked about a lot this year is language mm, and the yeah. way that language is used in telling in telling stories, um, particularly in like not spoon feeding things as much to white audiences to American audiences always in English. Um, I thought the movie did some really interesting things with language, and so I'm guessing that was one of the things that that hit for you. Yeah, uh, that that was one of the things that you know, made me interested in the movie in the first place, right? Like, I might uh-huh. have watched it anyway, you know? Like, I I watched Black Adam and Shazam 6, or I guess it's only two, but it feels <laughs> like... <laughs> and, you know, and, and The Flash, and, you know, various... Oh, speaking of multiverses, yep. I, I left that one out of the list. Um, but, um, yeah, but having having... You know, a lot of Spanish in the movie and, and like Spanglish, like as, you know, they've yeah. actually referred to it that way, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, uh, code switching and whatever, right? And, yep. um, it, it felt to me very natural. A lot of times 
Hollywood movies do stuff like that with, um, with bilingual characters or, or even like just like non English speaking characters. Um, and it feels very forced. It feels very artificial here. It felt natural to me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think, I think they made an effort with that. And, um, I think that's a front that they largely succeeded on. You know, I, I liked that, you know, his family members kind of had like different nicknames for him, you know, mm-hmm. like I think his dad like called him Flacco and like, um, his uncle called him like Gabison and like, like, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. it just, it felt, pretty natural it didn't feel like where just like they kind of inserted the, the random you know right. spanish like someone like looked something up in a dictionary you know like yeah. it um and i mean i'm not super fluent in spanish i'd say i'm like borderline mm-hmm. like in terms of like understanding um but just it it did feel feel natural to me and it, it felt like it was not used as a device so much as it was kind of at the heart of the movie, really, you know, the really language. Um, and, you know, I mean, I mentioned, I, I think some of the dialogue in, in English actually wasn't so great. <laughs> I don't think that's like um, a, a, a slight at the writers or writers is <laughs> um, English skills. It's more just the, you know, sometimes movie lines are just a little, a little cheesy. It's funny. Like I rewatched LA Confidential, which I think is one of the greatest movies of all time and, mm-hmm. you know, one best adapted screenplay. And there's a few lines that kind of, I'm like, uh, maybe you could have yeah. written a different line there or not or whatever, but like, and like you know, I'm, yeah. I think people say awkward things all the time. <laughs> That's I true. do. Yes. And so I don't. Like, it's fun to have a movie where everyone speaks in quotable, awesome dialogue, but I don't mind awkward characters saying awkward things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In this, it was that the dialogue was so predictable. Right. Like, yes. I was often I'm able to predict a plot point. Here I was able to predict lines word for word. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. But the what they did with language, first of all, because when there are long sentences in Spanish or in other languages, which I'll get to in a second, because Spanish is not the only language featured, and that's, I think, a really important point. Mm-hmm. Um, but in longer sentences, they would translate. But when it's just like a phrase, um, none of the nicknames that you mentioned, there's ever a translation given. Um, some of them I knew. Some of them I think I guessed from context. Some of them I have no idea what they mean. And I, I think that's better. You know, like yeah. I, a lot of people said, myself included – that one of the great things about across the spider the into the spider verse and then across the spider verse is that when his mother speaks to him in Spanish, it's not translated, but you often right. can really get a sense of what she's saying. I think that was true here. Yeah, and yeah, to me, I think it wasn't it wasn't about hey, look, we're doing multilingual. It was like no, we're we're just getting a picture of inside this person's family and how they would speak. The other language stuff they do is there's a. Another character who is – so their whole family is Spanish and specifically Mexican uh, and they make a point of mentioning – without hitting you over the head with it, but that, that some of the family members are documented and some are mm-hmm. not. There's another character who is Portuguese uh, – who is Brazilian. Yeah. And you can kind of see her like – she never interacts directly when the family is speaking Spanish, but you – like they sh- sh- they cut to her face a couple times and see her kind of like following but struggling to follow a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, yeah. Which – uh, I have a number of Brazilian friends now through the judge program, and that's that's an experience they've often talked about. Some of them know Spanish fluently because they've studied it. Others, like, the two languages are close enough. Mm-hmm. And she does at one point, you know, when she has her, like, epic line to the villain, she delivers it in Portuguese, which um, I had subtitles on, which told me that. Um, 
I don't know if uh, I would have known it necessarily. I think I would have heard the difference between Spanish. And then lastly, there's one other character who um, we don't get much of his background until the very end, but we learn that he was um, a Guatemala. He's Guatemalan and specifically that he's native. He's part of the indigenous people of Guatemala and that he was taken and uh, the movie does not pull any punches no. the way a lot of superheroes movies made and that like the whole idea is that like he was taken as part of like the horrible things the American government was doing in Central America at the time of uh you know Reagan and the like and like they they have a like you hear Reagan's actual voice during right, yeah, part of that scene. Yeah. So it's like very clear what's going on. There's also a character who I think the implication is that she ran with Che or she was part of like number of, you know, oh. Cuban revolution uh, you know, uh Spanish uh Latin American civil war, uh, Latin American civ- uh, revolutionary movements at some point in the in the past, yeah. which is phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, but just the like I I was brought to tears by just the getting to hear this character kind of reconnect with his culture and his language, and and speak in a movie that had been so much about Spanish. It felt really powerful to me of saying like, oh yeah, and also here are other people in. Like the geographic area, not all Latin American, because Port uh, Brazil is not Latin American. Um, well, well it, it's, on, uh, it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it is. It, it is colonized by people from the Iberian Peninsula. I've who heard speak Latin a Latin, Latin language, so it, right. it, it's yeah, it, it, it's it's Portuguese speaking is is yeah, yeah. The, the the way to. Yeah. The Brazilians I know get very offended if I call if they're referred to as Latin Americans, but I have no idea if that's universal. Um, but um, but yeah, but but point, but that being a different language, and also the Guatemalan, uh, and then and specifically being the native being a different language, it just it it really kind of summed up I think a theme that was constant in a lot of the stuff we talked about this year of people getting to speak in their own language, and that was everything from. You know, some of the earlier stuff we talked about where where it was literally about language, but also just I, I feel like we've talked a lot about like characters getting – characters in stories getting to find their voices, but also on more of a meta level, characters from backgrounds that are often like the objects of people's stories getting to ha- find their voices and be the subject of stories. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, writers basically getting to express – um themselves in you know in multiple languages in you know in um in like in in natural ways that when somebody who that's not um like when you're doing this with language right when you're trying to write in multiple languages um and this is something that i'm attempt to be (laughs) conscious of myself as as someone who grew up speaking one language you know Mm -hmm. surrounded by like all the languages in new york you know Mm -hmm. um and acquiring to various degrees a number of language uh languages throughout the years but like as an adult really mostly um i think writing some there's there's like a difference between trying to learn some words to put them in a story and like mm-hmm. really speaking a language and trying to include that in your story right. and i think one of the beautiful things about film as a medium um and i know everything everywhere all at once came out not this year, right? But mm-hmm. the Oscars were this year, right? It, it, yeah. it won like all the Oscars this year. Um, one of the things that I think is beautiful about film as a medium is that, you know, the writers, even though one of them, I think one of them is, is Chinese American. 
I think I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but, um, but like doesn't really speak, I, I think was quoted as saying like, obviously we don't speak Chinese or something like that. Um, right. but that's one of the writers of everything everywhere all at once or of, yes, the of everything everywhere all okay. at once. Um, but that the cast, you know, that when you have a number of, um, Chinese speaking actors, they can basically be like, no, 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 that's not how they would say it. They would say this, you know, or they, and they did that, I, I believe in the production of that movie and kind of just naturally were like, oh, well, well, this character would speak Mandarin and this character would speak Cantonese. And so this character would speak Mandarin to her husband and Cantonese to her father. And like that fits with the characters. And in, I don't think in the subtitles, they told you whether it was Cantonese or Mandarin. You know, mm-hmm. and, I and so. I think that was something that you kind of like had to just pick up on. Um, but, um, it, I, for, for me, it feels like it really works when, because you, you write a, a screenplay for a movie and that's not like the list of all the lines of dialogue that gets sp- spoken, right? That's mm-hmm. not really how, how screen, how, how film production works in, in television. It can be more like that a lot of the times where they basically just shoot the script, um, mm-hmm. But in, um, in, in, what's it called? In, uh, in films, very often there will be a lot of alteration to those, um, to, to the script, right? During the, Mm -hmm. during the, the process of filming. And a lot of times the, and this can happen in television, obviously, but I think it's more prevalent in, um, in filmmaking where, where the, the actors can be like, Oh, you know, my character, I think would actually say this this way. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons it's, you know, when, when you cast like not like actors who can't speak the language of the character and they're kind of just learning things phonetically or they just know a little bit, um, or actors who aren't, you know, of whatever culture or kind of adjacent to the culture that a character is, they're not going to be able to like supply that. Right. That's, it's yeah. like, it's kind of like a, like a, um, like a credibility check or a, that, that's not the word I want, but like, it, it's like a, a check on the, you know, does it, this feel right to you? You know, it, it's that is, is a person like, I don't think every single line of dialogue spoken by a character has to be written by a person who has the exact same background as that character. Because, I mean, th- that's just impossible. But also, I just sure. think, like, there is lots of great storytelling to be had in other directions. Yeah, But sure. the, like, I think more and more we're coming to an understanding of a writer writing a character whose background they have very little experience of and who hasn't sought out people with that experience, you right. know? Um, like can really suffer. And I think it was very clear to me in, in the writing of this as well as looking down the list of other things I watched this year, a lot of things that I liked most were ones where, it was, you know, it, it was pretty well publicized that like the authors had either really, you know, had the experience themselves or had brought others into the writing room who had those experiences or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and you know, Blue Beetle's an example of, you know, the, the person's credited with the screenplay because, you know, the writer, uh-huh. but like, the writing of it is a complex process and often many, right. you know, many cooks in that kitchen, but the, you know, the, the writer um, with the screenplay credit is, um, you know, was born in Mexico, you know, it was right. Gareth Dunnett Alcocer. And, um, you know, so I, I think that 
obviously helps when you're trying to write a screenplay where most of the characters were either born in Mexico or like, I think his sister was born in Palmera city. I think, yeah. I, I think it's what, you know, and which, which I learned is like in the same way, Metropolis and Gotham are both like different sides of New York. This is yeah. basically DC is Miami. Oh, th- oh, this is Miami. It looked see, it looked like Miami, but for some reason I thought it was like LA ish, but it makes more sense as, yeah. as Miami. Yeah. Uh, we were watching it and I described it as a happy – I described it as a happy city of Blade Runner. Huh? Like it's like the, yeah, all the yeah, neon. Yeah. Yeah. And then someone else described it as cyber pop as right, opposed right. to cyberpunk, which I yeah. both thought were fitting. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Uh-huh. I don't know about super happy when like a bunch of just like paramilitary personnel can just show up at your house and start shooting mm-hmm. the joint up and like there, I just, there, there weren't any cops, right? <laughs> like in the I whole movie. I just meant that like – like Blade Runner, every scene is like dark and yeah, dreary yeah, yeah, and yeah. rain with all the neon, and this was like the sun shining on the neon all the time. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it feels like a place, and that yeah. place is is kind of Miami. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they they actually made that up for this movie. The character originally, I think, is from El Paso, and mm. uh, so so. They wanted to change that for whatever reason and kind of, yeah. I think they wanted to give him his place that's like, this is the Blue Beetle pipe place, you know? Right. Um, and the main character, Jaime Reyes, is the, um, is the third Blue Beetle. And mm-hmm. so they kind of worked in the original, I think both of the original two Blue Beetles kind of in the story, which I thought was kind of cool. And, um, I thought that, that kind of worked well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I really like that, and just kind of looking over, kind of, as I'm kind of talking to you, I'm like I've been looking over some of my other podcasts from this year, and yeah, seeing this theme of like people's voices coming out, and one particular podcast I want to lift up is one I did uh, came out September 12th. It's called Blurs and Fandom with Caged Bishop Cosplay. Caged Bishop Cosplay is someone on TikTok primarily. He does great, great stuff, and he he talks very proudly about being uh, a blurred which for those who don't know the term is a black nerd um you know and so he talks about a lot of the same stuff that we're we're talking about from his specific perspective as a black man and um i really love that podcast we really got a lot in a lot of great things and uh, we actually talked about bar the barbie movie for a while and why mm. we both loved it so much and different perspectives on it but that was just kind of one podcast i wanted to lift up another theme that for me really was kind of brought out by this movie is how much the strike affected this year. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the production of this movie, I don't think was affected by the strike at all, but it did not do very well. And I think that like the way Hollywood is, a lot of people are probably taking that as like, oh, this isn't an interesting character. Or people weren't interested in, you know, a Mexican-American family. To me, though, I think the fact that like None of the stars could publicize it when it came out. Like a lot of movies that came out during the strike were really hurt with their marketing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of folks like myself just weren't going to watch any movies during that time. But also just even people who were like, you know, talking to both of my partners, neither one of them had – they remembered like seeing trailers for it years ago. But neither one had realized that it had come out because there was just so little publicity about it. And I, I don't know if that's just because of the strike or also because DC like – I, what – what DC and and that company does right now about what they publicize and what they don't and, you know, pulling movies off the shelf and stuff, I have no idea. But I really think this was a movie that was hurt by – and when I say I blame the strike, I'm 100% blaming the studios to be clear. Like I'm 100% pro-union. I'm pretty sure Paul is as well. 
Um, uh, actually, well, no, <laughs> that, was yeah, okay. a, that was the whole thing. That yeah, I do want to get upset into. about that. Never yeah, mind. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, go, continue your thought. That is, yeah. I, I'd like to put a pin in that one. Yeah, sure, for sure. Um, but my point being that just I don't want you to think I'm like being like, oh goddamn, those actors or writers yeah, who, for you sure, know, for sure, who who caused this. But I do think that I want more people to give this movie a. a uh, attention, and it just really brings up how much the strike was a theme, both in terms of we did a great episode on labor stuff where you and I talked back and forth, and and we did yeah. did disagree on a lot of stuff, uh, agreed on a lot of things as well, um, and also that just how much the strike wound up affecting this podcast because we spent probably like four or five months looking for um, content outside of the Hollywood system and. I'll talk more about that because I think that like we did some great content on individual things, but also it was just fantastic to really like be like, hey, there's lots of great content being made outside of Hollywood, and we should talk more about that. But yeah, if you want to uh, put your pin in the the yeah. union comment, yeah. So um, just to address the last thing, I, I one thing I really enjoyed as a consequence of um, the strike was the like the reminder, the like very important reminder that like. Hollywood is not all of filmmaking, yeah. right? That um, that filmmaking, you know, both um, both you know, cinema and and television uh, extend beyond Hollywood, and that there's tons of great stuff that you can watch from all different places in the world, and. You know, and that that's not, you know, you might have a distributor that in the, within the United States, which is involved mm-hmm. with Hollywood, right? But, um, but that if you're like, well, I don't want to watch any of these Hollywood things during the strike because I don't want to support the companies that are, it, the, the whole thing gets very complicated. But like, if, if you're just like, I don't want to do that, or, you know, you didn't want to cover yeah. any of that, then it's like, well, there's, there's no shortage of other things to cover, you know, and yeah. um, I enjoyed the opportunity and kind of the the push to to watch some more things that some things that I had seen before and to rewatch them like Sharps um, mm-hmm. and and some other things like, um, you know, the Hidden Fortress and the, the Godzilla movie, uh, the first one, you know, we mm-hmm. watched together um, and and a lot let me of just other say stuff. Something I, yes. Let me just say something that quickly is that yeah. on, on with this idea of like, you know, people getting to speak out of their own voice. Um, it Part of why I watched Godzilla at the time it was coming out was it was right when Oppenheimer came out. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of commentary I made about like, hey, how come we're talking all about the atom bomb completely without like a single Japanese character ever appearing on screen? Yeah. And I've now watched Oppenheimer and I think the movie is not about the things that the marketing campaign made it look like it was about. And I right. do think it's it actually – a very well-made movie that's a very interesting story, mm-hmm. but that shouldn't be the definitive, like, story about, you know, the nuclear bombs dropped on Japan. Right. Um, and I'm not saying Godzilla should be, but I do think <laughs> that, like, I, I mean, and, and this wasn't just me, my observing, like, doing a lot of reading, there's been a yeah. lot of Japanese commentary about this, that the movie was very much, it was made only eight years after, and basically a year after the American occupation ended, so they yeah. first could do it. And it's very clearly the entire thing a metaphor for and a kind of national reckoning with the you know the the horrible thing that ha- that that America did to them and did to the Japanese and so it's it's um and then the later movies are just a lot of fun and and some of them have really deep themes as well and some of them are just watching guys in rubber suits crush plastic buildings which looks yeah. really fun and and you get to see move, rubber monsters be passive aggressive and it's wonderful 
But yeah, I would. That's another one that I think came out of this that I would really strongly recommend. The 1954 Japanese version, uh, that's particularly important because they made an American version, which is the first thing that often come on searches, in which they took out all the stuff that's critical of America. Edit, um, right? It's a, it's the, yeah. the edit that was released in the United States, um, which was the only one that was really available in the United States for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's the same movie, but it's a different edit, so it's a completely different movie. Well, yeah, it's not only that it's just a different edit, though. They actually made new footage right. of a white reporter who, like, gets to be oh, a big okay. part they of the added story. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you, you were making a larger point. I just wanted – because that to me ties in so much with the, like, you know, hearing folks have their own voice. Yeah, for sure. And, and like, I mean, I find it interesting to see also the different stereotypings that you get from one side. Like, you know, if you see an American film and then – the American film sort of interpretation of the Japanese, and you see a Japanese film, the Japanese interpretation of, you know, Americans, and then you watch some Chinese films and their interpretation of the Japanese, and then also, like, I watched... Uh, we did Ip Man, right, with Donnie mm-hmm. Yen, and then I more recently watched, which which takes place during the Japanese occupation of China, and, right, right and... But then I watched um, Enter the Fat Dragon which is also a Donnie Yen movie um, that takes place largely in Japan. And it's like, you know, there's, there's this like scene where like everybody's telling them to be quiet basically, which is, I think this, um, you know, sort of like Chinese impression or stereotype of Japan, but then also of this self-awareness of like being called loud, you know, particularly like Cantonese speaking Chinese from like Hong Kong. Um, and so it's just kind of getting to see different, you know, representations from different cultures of other cultures and then of themselves. And like, obviously, no one stereotype or whatever is going to be universal, but kind of getting to see different angles on mm-hmm. on the same things or um, whether it's the same events like the, you know, the horrific attacks on Japan um, by the United States at the end of, of World War II or you know, the horrific attacks on China by Japan and Mm -hmm. at the beginning of World War II, like seeing different takes on things, I think just is, um, it's interesting, it's valuable. And to me, it feels important to just not always get one view of anything, you know? Um, And I I, I would just say, I think that's really true. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the strike, like, I don't want to get too much into it, but just basically, Unions are power structures, and power structures by humans are used as they're used. And during the strike, I was very conscious of trying not to talk too much about the things about the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, like the way that they were doing things that I didn't like. Because the producers, which is it was a guild, the, the AMPTP or whatever, like, it, for me, it was one of these situations where it's like you have two sides that I think are not doing things I agree with, but one Mm -hmm. of them's doing things I like vehemently oppose. And the other (laughs) side, I'm just like, yeah, that's not, what, why, Uh," you know? And I feel like sometimes there's a time for nuance and there's a time for, if not like blind solidarity, then at least like, look right now, while you're kind of like having your moment, I'm not going to be like, this is why I don't think you're this, wonderful organization that like everybody should just be like rah 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 but at the same time 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you like do your thing. And then like, I'll try and give, you know, come in with my pedal, my nuance later, you know, kind yeah. of, um, where like, you know, and this happens in wars too, right? Where it's like, well, yeah. both sides are wrong, but one side has bigger guns. And that's really the thing in the, you know, producers versus writers or producers versus actors, or whatever. It's like the producers have bigger guns. They have more money. Yeah. And I mean, that's metaphorical. So not as big a deal, you know, mm -hmm. but like overall, it's like, for me, it's like, I think it's important to be able to be like, yeah, I don't agree with everything you're doing or the way you're going about it. And I don't think all of your motives are necessarily wonderful, you know? Yeah. Um, but you're going up against someone who I think is dramatically more wrong than you. So like, all right, you know, I, I, it's yeah. not necessarily the time, you know, it's like, it's like during the, the 2020 protests, um, the, you know, the sometimes violent protests, more often mm -hmm. not violent protests. It's like, I feel like that wasn't a time to be like, well, actually, you know, um, yeah. this way of going about things is not going to achieve. It's like, just to no, like, yeah. you know, let people speak for themselves. And then, I mean, and the thing about unions is sort of like who is speaking for exactly whom, you know? Right. And so in the same way that Hollywood doesn't represent all film, you know, the writer's guild doesn't represent all writers, right. you know? Um, and I appreciate that there are multiple actors guilds, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, my parents were both in film unions. My coming to this earth actually was paid for by the Teamsters union. Um, and like my parents paid basically nothing of the then not quite as astronomical delivery <laughs> charges of children, but like, you know, but also like the Teamsters, like literally, I think they, they did like break people's legs in spots yeah. and like, you know, <laughs> and, like they asked people, they're like, so do you do that? And it's like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's real, you know? Yeah. And, but, you know, but also you don't want to like portray all unions that way. And Hollywood's had a bad history of portraying unions, you know? Yeah. Um, that's very true. And like to, to bring it full circle, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch my, my screenplay idea that. Sure. I can't write entirely by myself. Um, and I actually have a co-writer who I've never talked to that I have in mind and I have a dream director and whatever. But like, um, in 1982, there was a, a garment workers strike in Chinatown, um, in New York. And, um, and actually before even the writer strike, I was like thinking like, that's something that there should be a movie of, you know? Yeah. And, um, my mother-in-law worked in, in the garment, you know, was a, a garment worker in New York, not in Chinatown, and, like, just yeah. after the strike. But, like, I, you know, I have an idea for a movie there. But, like, I'm, like, I don't think somebody who didn't grow up, you know, directly in this world should be, like, the only writer on a project like that. You know, I, right. I don't believe that, like you can only write things that are exactly like your own personal experience. But I, I do believe that like, you know, one of the things that the, the union was talking about was preserving the writer's room. And I feel a little conflicted about that because some of the ways they were doing it, like felt very artificial, like some of their very concrete mm -hmm. demands about exactly how many staff members there had to be based on exactly how many episodes there were for a show. And I'm like, right. is this just going to lead to longer run times? Like, so they don't, you know what I mean? Like if someone wants to make six hours of content, they're like, Oh, well, if we make six episodes, we have to have this many writers and 12 hours. So we're just going to do four hour and a half episodes. Yeah. Um, 
But I do think the, you know, the strength of something like a writer's room is you can actually get people with different backgrounds, with different perspectives. Right. And you, you really can bring a bunch of voices to, to one project right. and, and make sure that you have the necessary voices, you know, in any given project. For sure. Well, especially because I think sometimes when the rules become very black and white, by very poor phrasing, but sure. I think that a lot of nuance can be lost. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, generally, if I hear a white person is writing a story about a non-white community, a part of me gets a little like, oh, okay. Like, if you told me you were going to write a story about something that happened in Kenya, I'd be like, what are you doing, buddy? Mm-hmm. You married well, into a Chinese-American yeah. family, and I've lived in, you know, like, you've had, you are not Chinese, but you, to me, there's a level of experience that you have connection to that culture that, as you said, yes, yeah, so bringing in other writers. I'm not trying to speak for you. I'm just, to me, just a general example of someone just heard a white person's writing about something that happened in Chinatown. Like, there are layers to what exposure people have to different experiences and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's like, I mean, people can look at, you know, someone's background on paper and think, you know, like I, I, I just see on, you know, Wikipedia, oh, the, you know, the writer of Blue Beetle is, you know, Referred to as Mexican born. I don't know what that means. You know, right? Like, is he is he Mexican? Is he Mexican American? Like, did is he just American? But he was born in Mexico and he moved when he was like a week old. Like, I I don't know. Right? That's yeah. so. You know, I kind of threw that out there as like, oh, that seems like a positive thing, right? That yeah. But like, I don't necessarily know exactly what that means in terms of like what his personal experiences. I haven't read a bunch of interviews and done a bunch of research, you know, in that regard. But, and like, I, I do think that there is a danger in like trying to judge other people's kind of worthiness or relevance to like doing any particular project. And like, yeah, I'll write something that takes place in Kenya. Like I can't not write something that takes place in Kenya. Like, but, but like there is an awareness of like, I don't personally at this point in time have that much knowledge of Kenya, you know? Right. Like I can find it on a map, which I think puts me in like maybe 10% of people who live in the United States, but you know, sadly, but like that doesn't really do much in terms of knowing what anyone's given experiences in a given place. But, Mm -hmm. um, but I do think obviously like, you know, I could be the same person. And two years from now, I could have lived in Kenya for two years, pretty unlikely, turn of events Mm -hmm. but like and then like you know it it would seem a little more reasonable but i i do think that there's like a little bit of like um i don't know i think as a writer it's like important to ask like am i the best person to tell this story but yeah but like not to the point of being like well then i i like to like not doing anything or feeling like there's should be some real like you know like the writer of superhero movies, they're not superheroes. You know what I mean? And I know, uh, you're, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, Some of this I, stuff actually, yeah. I, there's a large conversation to be had here. And I think you and I are not, uh, you know, I think I see things pretty differently than you, but I also hear what you're saying. Um, I, I think for me, the part of it's also that, like, it, it's the, like, kind of what we're saying about, like, you know, if the first story about the atom bomb is being told about American guilt about it, mm, that mm-hmm. seems, you know, and it's not the first story, but it's one of the first all, major yeah. movies by Americans, yeah. certainly. And that's yeah. like, you know, 
if we were getting tons of Kenyan movies by Kenyans, which we are, they just no one ever sees them. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I'm like, sure, yeah, write it. But, it, you know, but, but I also think, as you said, there's ways of, like, I have not yet seen Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm very curious to see it. I hope to see it. Um, but a number of Native Amer- uh, Native American, um, you know, uh, content creators who I follow, including some of those, you know, f- from the the um, tribal group that is that the movie is about, which, the name of which I forget, you know, ha- have been very clear about like Martin Scorsese worked with us for a very long time on writing mm-hmm. this movie. There was one quote that I really love where he basically said like, "This is not the movie that someone from." our background would have written. Right. But it's the best movie we could have imagined a white man making. Mm-hmm. And right now, Hollywood won't let us make the movie. Right. So if right. Martin Scorsese makes the movie, then, you know, that's great. And I think yeah. that's And I think there's something to be said for like when Martin Scorsese makes that movie, which I haven't seen or really yep. read about, um, I I do think it can make it easier for the people who are saying, you know, we can't make that movie right now. Mm-hmm. to gain the visibility and the opportunity to make maybe not that exact movie, you know, right. but um, at other times it makes it harder, you know? Yeah. And I think it, it's sort of being aware of how the industry is functioning and stuff like that. I think, I, I think that's useful, you know, kind yeah. of knowing like, is this, you know, um, yeah. is this helping? Is this hurting? Like, what am I trying to do here? Like, do I just have a story I want to tell? And so I'm going to tell that story. And like, you can have whatever thoughts you want about my identity or this or that or whatever. Or like, you know, if it really is someone else's story, then like, how can I make sure that whoever's story it really is? Like, if it's relating to like real people um, or like a very specific culture, how can I make sure that people from that culture or people within that story or related to that story are involved or at least, um, you know, in, in some capacity, right. Whether or not they have the, the written by credit, you know, for sure. For sure. Um, pulling back just to the union stuff. I want to talk about a movie that we, we watched this year. I watched this year. I I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, I won't talk about, let's try that again. Pulling back to the union stuff, one more thing I want to say about that and the strike is there's one movie for which I broke the picket in that regard that we talked about a Disney-made movie, but it felt appropriate after seeing the actors from the movie singing the songs from the movie on the picket lines. And I'm talking about the movie that, as far as I can understand, is where a hell of a lot of people, a hell of a lot of millennials and Gen Zers, and even some folks of our generation, got really a union consciousness, and that's Newsies, which is uh, Christian Bale as a 15-year-old uh, newsboy singing and dancing as he talks about the of the very real uh, newspaper boy strike of 1898, or maybe 1900. Um, it's a ridiculous movie. It's a lot of fun. It's a Disney musical with all of that entails, but it's really a beautiful story about unions and actually has a lot of like union theory in it. And I really loved getting to do an episode about it and really using that as a lens to look at the unions. I mean, certainly one thing I talked about is that unions aren't perfect by any means, but that there's a need for like, like there are times where inside the union, they disagree on tactics, Mm -hmm. but they have the strategy of like, once we decide, once the majority or the leadership decides on the tactics, then we're all the strategy is to then all go out and hold up those tactics, you know. Right, right. Um, 
And yeah, it's it's by no means a perfect movie and it's not completely accurate, but it was just well, I mean obviously the singing and dancing is very much not accurate. Um <laughs> although Christian Bale's a good singer. Um so I hurt the Batman voice hurts. Um but yeah, so that was just a fun one. Um I want to hear more of the things that that Blue Beetle brought up for you, but I'm wondering can you guess what is the topic that I really more and more became enamored of this year that Blue Beetle gets doesn't does a completely awful job of. Yeah, I see the the transition about Blue Beetle for me would be um Kevin Conroy as Batman singing Am I Blue? Oh, okay. There you but, go. There yeah, you go. So <laughs> speaking of Batman singing. Um mm-hmm. wait, so what what is that that it doesn't bring up? I mean, is it the multiverse? Is it What what's a topic that I really love talking about on this podcast oh. <laughs> that this is not a good example of? That you love talking about. Um, relatable villains. Relatable villains. <laughs> is that is that it? That's it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you're right. Susan Sarandon's character is not. It, it is a two direct, two dimensional cardboard cutout of an evil, evil Reaganite profiteering, yeah, you know, yeah. person. And I think Susan Sarandon did a great job of playing a terribly written character. Yeah. yeah. Who, the whole point was to be like. And it's funny because, like, I I one point said on this podcast that I think like just you should always have a relatable villain, and someone called me out on it. It may have been you, it may have been Jess Plummer, yeah, um, uh, maybe both you at the same time. I don't know, <laughs> but basically pointing out like that that is great most of the time, but sometimes you just want to focus on the hero mm. and and don't want to engage with that. And I, and yeah, like to me, Susan Sarandon's villain being completely uninteresting is not at all a problem with the movie. But I think this year really did codify for me that I think it is for the for, – for me, that's what makes the ethical, ethical podcast, you know? It's right, like right. dealing with – and there's some great challenges the heroes face that Blue Beetle deals with one of my personal fa- – two of my personal favorites. Um, but I really like looking back at a lot of the things we, we, we talked about this year, you know, um, the, the stories of villains but also the story of – heroes who are really pretty dark or mm-hmm. characters who aren't heroes but are protagonists like right. dread to me is a great example of that you know of like he's an maybe he's an anti-hero maybe he's just a protagonist who's not heroic um which are I, you doing a whole about? podcast about a uh, dread oh dread i thought you said red and i'm like the from the blacklist oh. i was like i <laughs> i was like i guess he's not a hero he, I, he's yeah. not exactly the protagonist yeah dread um, yeah for sure for sure Similarly, um, like Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, um, which you have not seen or read, I have right? not seen, yeah. Okay. I will be very careful not to spoil I don't think I care, but – Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah maybe maybe I, light on the spoilers. It's pretty recently came out, so I won't mm-hmm. – but I'll just say that it it is a movie about President Snow, but it is not a villain origin story in the traditional something bad happened to a good person mm. – and the Joker was proven right, you know, and right, that they right. turned. It was – this is a person who was on a bad path and was given opportunities t- to change and, and we watch them not do so. And it's right. – part of what makes it so brilliant to me is there's never a moment where I don't find the character intensely relatable, you know, in that I'm feeling oh. like if I was raised the way he was raised mm-hmm. and experienced the trauma he experienced – I want to believe I would make better choices than he did. Right. And I think I would, but I also understand why I would re- – like I 
I can understand the urge to go into all the darkness that he does. And yeah, it was, yeah. I think both that and Dread were just both. It's funny. Dread was literally the first movie we talked about this year. Mm. And um, that one was the last was before last, we got yeah. into um, uh, the, the one that came after that was what is a Christmas movie, which is a fun genre exploration. Um, but Christmas movies generally don't involve villains. Well, sometimes well, they do. Yeah. Not, I, not, I, not, I've repeatedly watched uh, Scrooge. Um, the, the Actually, the Disney version with Uncle Scrooge um, oh, yeah. in Cantonese. But like oh, – it's, <laughs> it's definitely Christmassy and he's definitely a villain and then he gets yeah. a chance to turn – away from that villainous path than he does. You know, spoilers for A Christmas Carol (laughs) and the 15,000 adaptations that you may find in film and television. Uh, And actually, we had someone be very critical of the Christmas uh, Carol story, which is fun on that uh, What is a Christmas Movie podcast. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what's what's, how do you feel about relatable villains? I think they can be great. I think making a majority of villains – there's, like, relatable and then there's just, like, this character is a person, you know? Yeah. And I feel like Andor did a good job of having a mix of relatable antagonists or antagonists that you had a chance to relate to mm-hmm. if you happened to relate to some of some of their experiences or or, you know, put them in some situations that you might develop some empathy for them and then be like, oh, no, this is a villain. You know, yeah. and then other characters who are just there, they're still characters, but it's like maybe not as relatable, but just like, yeah, that seems like a person, you know, yeah. as opposed to like, this is a cardboard cutout of a villain, you know? Yeah. And, um, maybe you know, a better way of saying what I wanted to say is of that you understand that the villain thinks they're the hero. The, right. The villain yeah. isn't twirling their mustache because Susan Sarandon was twirling her mustache like one of the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think there's room for both. And I mm-hmm. think that there are more um, – that there are more relatable villains or villains that you understand believe they are the protagonist. I think mm-hmm. that is generally uh, a good thing that there are more of them. But I also don't think there's no room for villains who are not like that. You know, I, I believe yeah. there's there's space for both. And, you know, was that the – the best choice in this movie? Maybe. You know, I mean, she could have been maybe, a, you know, she could be like two and a half dimensional maybe. But like, yeah. you know, and and certain things felt like very on the nose. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, maybe that's just, that was fine in this movie. You know, there's, there's other, there's multiple antagonists who have a little bit more going yeah. on. Who, who, you know, it's the one you mentioned. There's, there's another one um, who also has a, I think, relatable experience by consistently not being called by his name, you know, and I think that can be relatable to a lot of people um, in different ways, right? Um, It was unfortunate that that led to one of the lines that I could predict word for word. Yes, Um, yes. But yeah, it was very relatable and his like hero turn in that regard was very relatable if incredibly telegraphed. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Totally predictable, (laughs) not subtle, but like, you know, it, it was there, you know, and... And so I, you know, I think, I think sometimes, I don't think, hmm, some movies just don't seem to have the bandwidth to do certain things together, you know, and maybe, maybe trying to make her character more than it was, you know, um, and they kind of almost like with her off screen sort of hand waved in that direction, 
you right. know, where like, you know, the basic plot premise is that, uh, you know, this guy makes a company and he has a son and a daughter who are running the company. And then the son maybe kind of goes away from running the company and the father dies and then he leaves it to the son. And, you know, they kind of mention like, that seems kind of sexist, you know, yeah. like, and, you know, we don't know all the details, but it's like, you know, you can kind of fill in like, yeah, she didn't like that. And so not like, therefore, she took a villainous turn, but that's why, you know, she kind of maybe has a chip on her shoulder about mm -hmm. how the company was run and, and what she wanted to do with it when, when she got control of it finally, you know, and, and so there's like, there's something there. It's just, they didn't, they didn't do much with it. And like, that's, yeah. that's okay. You know, yeah. um, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. It's a choice. For sure. For sure. But yeah, it, it's just definitely something that I, like, I have had this idea that I wanted to write a book about villains for a long time. And I think more and more, uh, it's something I hope that I'm going to do in the new year. Mm. And I, I think part of it for me is also that the better a villain is, I think it often, I, part of why I don't like, you know, completely evil, evil villains is it means that you have completely morally justified heroes because if mm. there is pure total evil in the world, you know, in the in the form of like a Palpatine, you know, unlimited power and all this, yeah, then it's very hard to ask questions about what is or isn't justified in in against that person, you know, and and um, you know, you need Hitler to have a Captain America, and there is a real world Hitler, like there is a you know, so there there definitely is, you know. Uh, even he thought he was the hero in his own story, mm. but I think to the rest of us can be pretty clearly like, yeah, absolutely awful. But then the feelings of just how absolutely awful led to the firebombing of Dresden, you know, right. and and the killing of hundreds of thousands of German civilians. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, it's just and, – and bring it back to Blue Beetle, I'll say the flip side of that to me then is the, the villain who wrestles with their own power. Mm -hmm. And – did you get some pretty strong Luke 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 Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi vibes from from um, Blue Beetle's journey in this? Oh, like allowing the guy with the prosthetic hand to kill the main villain. Uh, well, while dying that's kind of cool. At the same time, no, no, um, specifically in that, like, oh, um, oh yeah, he, like he wanted to kill the guy, and then he's like, "I'm not going to kill him because that's not who I am, who I want to be." Well, even more than that, he starts out as, like, he doesn't want to use lethal damage. And right. so he's, he's fighting this machine that he doesn't want to fight lethally. He then starts just, like, you know, punching them really hard against brick walls, which, as we've discussed, is another sure. yeah, favorite yeah, theme yeah. of mine. Um, but then later, when he's really kind of, like, at his lowest point, it's by embracing his anger mm -hmm. and, and, mm. and rage yeah. at what's happening to his family that he empowers himself. and. Yeah. On the Star Wars podcast, we've talked, like to. I think that the to me the original framing of the Force in Star Wars is that if you give in to anger and hate, that um it will you know forever will it dominate your destiny because you right, start yeah. to just see things as things you hate, and I think some of Star Wars got a little like black and white about that, and more recent in more recent stories, I think they've been embracing the idea of like. No, there is some power to rage. There is some power to anger. There's some power to hate. The problem is that it can can blind you. It can it overpower you. And so to me, having him both be incredibly empowered by focusing on his anger and his desire to, you know, it's it's 
desire to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, so is Anakin's, you know. Um, but then having it be that moment where he is like, I, I have to, you know, I have to kill this person who's done great harm to his family. And, and the machine stops him in some way. But it's because the machine knows, like, no, that's not what you want to do. Um, I, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And but also gave me it was like, oh, here's one of my favorite themes is like, how do you be how do you use great yeah, power yeah. to fight evil without becoming just a killing machine yourself? Right. And like, can you actually tap into your anger to, I mean, I feel like this relates a lot to, you know, our yeah. world problems where there are a great many things that um, we can be very angry about and that anger can drive us to action. We can allow anger to drive us to action and, and motivate us and, and push us to take action. But like somewhere there's a like, there needs to be some, you know, the, the id can't drive the yeah. train the whole time kind of, right? Like, um, like we, there needs to be some amount of like, sort of like supervising ourselves of like, okay, wait, yeah. you know, that's, that's not going to actually either, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. Or like, that's not going to achieve yeah. the ends I want. You know, and like, so I think like using anger as a motivation without letting it be a, like the yeah. only driving force, you know, um, I think like having it, <laughs> having it supply the fuel, but yeah. not drive the bus, you know, I think it's like, can, can we do that? And it's like, I think that's hard, but I think it's, yeah. it's possible, you know, um, and, and so I think he kind of manages to do that a little bit where, you know, he is the, that anger and you know the anger at something bad happening to people that he cares about driving him to mm-hmm. take action um but then still having the wherewithal to be like okay hold on i let's yeah mm-hmm. you're right you know i'm not cuz it is um uh kajida right the the voice the 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 right. blue beetle the machine you know yeah. um Yes, whether I mean, it's, I an think AI it's AI or it's like I think it's AI, but it may also be a spirit. We we don't have any idea. Right, what right. It is, it's not it's not really gone into deeply here. Um, right. And you know, and telling him um, like, wait, but this is what you said before. And it's like, oh yeah, I did say that. Okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah. You know, w- one other just cool thing that go- harkens back to the language stuff, yeah, but yeah. I'm not. But <laughs> yeah. I'm so struck I was by set you up for this. <laughs> yeah, is that as the Kajida and like him. They start out very much at Oz, and over the course of the movie, they they quite literally synchronize. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the movie shows that is that the Kajida starts speaking to him in Spanish. Right. At times. Which I thought, it goes like that. Ta- yeah, forth. very yeah. much. Again, yeah. not entirely – really talking to him in Spanglish. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. – and I just thought that was such a brilliant way of showing like this is now and, – and, and I think without that, that helps me to buy that it is so, you know, connected to his head. For sure, yeah. Um, Another just quick shout out of, you know, this is just like a, a connection, not a theme. Um, but um, what's the name of the actor who plays Jaime? Sholo Mariduena. Okay. Sholo Mariduena? Yeah, Mariduena. Yeah. Okay. This isn't really a, a theme of the show, although it's a topic we talk about a lot, but it's funny that this is so much of a connection, is this is now the second time we have talked about the actor Sholo Mariduena. 
Sholomoidwenya dealing with wanting to fight without using lethal force and being scared of the the possibilities of his force because of course he plays Miguel in Cobra Kai yeah. who goes through many of the exact same struggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I was like, you're being a little bit typecast, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're you're a great actor, so I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'd like to to give a little shout out to to Sholo uh, Maridwenya where he like. There's things that – and there's, like, certain just very Miguel things that Jaime does here, mm-hmm. you know, where, like, both in, like, when he's, like, talking to a girl and, like, mm-hmm. not be – like, somehow he he managed to come off as, like, very likable, charismatic. He can, like, be visibly interested in someone, but it doesn't feel like a – like a, you know, trying to, like, swap. win a – right. But also, like, it's like he's not, I don't know, like that, like, sort of sliminess or the kind of, like, aim to be possessive or something like that. Like, that's not there. Like, there's, he just has a very particular sort of charisma that I think um, Mm -hmm. comes out in this role that also does in Cobra Kai. um, And just works very well. He just gives off his attitude of, like, he's around a beautiful woman and he's just so happy and honored to be in her presence and he wants to keep doing that, you know, without... Like you said, without it being the, like, your mind now. Yeah, and, just, uh, like, a, a certain level of just kind of, like, respectfulness without, like, yeah. being, like, super deferential. It's, like, it just works. It's just got a vibe, and yeah. it comes out here. And, um, yeah, and it, it works, I think. Yeah, you know, it really does. It um, really does. And then also just a couple of other cast members. I, I mean, it was, it's cool to see George Lopez get to, like, play, mm-hmm. like, uh, I think a Mexican Doc Brown is how... Yeah. Um... What I think that was a line from the movie, right? That is a line, from, a the line movie, from the movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, a Mexican Doc Brown combined with like, are you still there? Yes. Did I lose you? Yeah. Okay. No, I'm here. Uh, a Mexican Doc Brown com- combined with a like survivalist super paranoid. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But it's a fun thing where the super paranoid guy gets to be tr- gets to be right. So that yeah. was fun. And um, and uh, uh, Damian Alcazar, um, who plays his father. Um, and I've actually recently said I was watching. I'm halfway through a movie, um, Que Viva Mexico, um, on on Netflix, where he plays maybe more than one character. Um, but <laughs> and and, uh, and he's in a bunch of other stuff, um, um, like like Mexican movies. You know, I, in yeah. in his bio, I think it refers to him as being in six foreign productions and 27 Mexican movies. Um, I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and just overall, like I, I thought, um, I mean, I, I, I liked Bruno Marquesine as Mar- Marquesine, Marquesine, um, as Jenny Cord, um, the kind of like love interest, but also like maybe the real protagonist of the, you know, like in yeah, terms of, in, in terms yeah. of the plot, you know, like he's the, like, I mean, she's the wasp to his Ant-Man quite literally. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. She, she's the daughter of the guy. Yeah, it's true. And then gets passed over. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. And, like, he kind of accidentally becomes, you know, the the, the mm-hmm. hero here, right? Like, he wasn't meant right. to, like, like the Blue Beetles just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to. Choose You're you. going to be my host now, you know. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, just over, overall, I felt like the cast brought a lot that um, I think if if – if you filmed this movie with a bad subpar cast, I think it would actually be mm-hmm. quite bad, you know? Yeah. But it, it wasn't, you know? There were parts that, you know, okay, we're doing this yeah. now, you know? Um, 
Yeah, there, there, were, there were some moments. I, I won't get into those, though. I'll focus on the part that I liked, which was, like, just, you know, just the performances and just seeing, like, you know, the people as as people, you know? Yeah. And I think fun. it really highlights that, like, I, I love ensemble hero movies. And, yeah. like, clearly this is, like, there's one named hero, but he's off screen for, like, 20 minutes of one of the biggest action scenes in the movie. And yeah. it, it works. And... I think like um this was a couple of years now ago now is a bunch of years ago now because when Rogue One came out but we did a great discussion um with Becky Allen about like moving away from the like you know one strong man of history stories all the time to be much more like ensembles and found family and this isn't really found family although one person kind of gets adopted into it yeah. it, it is a blood family but it is such a strong story of family and yes yeah when I first in- compared it to Encanto in my mind, I kind of stepped back for a second and being like, am I, am I kind of just doing this because it's about two, you know, Latin American families? And, but I think there are a lot of connections there of, of things that are, are very relate, you know, very connected to the Latin American experience, but like, you know, not exclusively to, but the way it's told, particularly in terms of, um, like family and the way the family interacts with each other. And that being very much extended family, but also just in terms of like the the history of colonial violence mm-hmm. uh, being a mm-hmm. big part of both of those stories yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. That's the bigger connection um, for me and kind of the yeah. family vibe, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Less the singing and dancing. Yeah, yeah. less the singing and dancing. <laughs> uh, but also the strong grandmother figure and, and yeah. sort of the memory of the grandfather being, being a part of the mm-hmm. – for sure. Uh, were there other big themes that really hit for you? Uh, there's one of the theme I want to talk about that's not connected to Blue Beetle, but were there any others that connect that you want to talk about from this year, either connected to Blue Beetle or not so? Um, I mean, just one one series that I'd like to just throw out there that I watched this year, I think during the strike, because I, I was like, am I going to just not watch anything? I was like, oh, I'm not paying for any of these things. So, I, uh-huh. so, so it's not like my, my money's going to the companies or whatever. Um, but just something that I watched that I really appreciated was, um, American born Chinese. That mm. was a, you know, that's a Disney production. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's not even Marvel. It's like this Disney, you know, and it's a, it's a superhero ish, you know, I mean, it's definitely, you know, um, supernatural. Um, it, it's, inspired by partially i mean it's it's actually it's it is a adaptation of you know graphic novels um Mm -hmm. and um it's got like half the cast of everything everywhere all at once who are all fabulous and not the best part of the series for me yeah um in terms of acting and one thing that i felt like that series really did a good job of without getting deep into it is letting a lot of different characters you know, have their stories and be protagonists within their own thing and, and be heroes really without um, like characters who you wouldn't necessarily expect to see that, to get, get that chance, you know? Um, And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, And now I'm rewatching it that my Mandarin isn't as terrible as it was when I first saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. It's definitely something I want to see that there's a big backload, big, yeah. No, the you watched that, it. You watched it. We talked about it. You're right. You're right. Thank yeah. you. My apologies. Yeah. No, we did watch it. Yeah. Um, that's right. No, we yeah, did yeah, talk yeah, about it on the podcast. But I, I was thinking about, about uh, – that's right. I, I thought we did talk about it on the podcast. Did we? Oh, my goodness. Is my, my – <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I was thinking I, I was thinking of a TV show. I, I thought there was a TV show that was kind of like an updated version of the fresh off the boat idea. And that's what I thought you were talking about. But then I realized, no, it was a movie that was really good. No, it was a series. This is a series. a series of eight. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. not like, I mean, I guess there are similarities to, to fresh off the boat, but um, it's a very different feel. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an action it's a story. Superhero yeah. story, yeah, exactly. Um, Supernatural story, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and oh no, there is another thing that I then watched the yeah. the legend, the new legends of Monkey, which is like the same kind of character group of characters, or based on the same, mm-hmm. you know, I think sixteenth century Chinese novel, which, mm-hmm. um, but but this one is an Australian. Uh, sort of remake-ish of a 1980s Japanese TV series that was based on this much older Chinese novel, and I. But I watched it dubbed in Mandarin, which was like a weird experience. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of watching things dubbed in English, now I'm watching English things dubbed in Mandarin. Which and it's it has like a bit of a like Xena Hercules vibe. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's 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 uh it's different. It's different. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, one small thing, and then one other bigger theme that I wanted to bring up, just back to the subject of villains, again, because of the strike, um, we got to re-explore some, of the, some much older works. And, you know, I've always known that superhero movies did not invent the idea of the relatable villain by any means, but I think I got a really powerful reminder of just how deep some of these ideas go. And they go far, far beyond what I'm about to mention, far, far older than that, but still, um, the novel Moby Dick. Um uh, Moby Dick was a book that I kind of had skimmed a little bit when I was much younger, didn't really get into. I've heard 8 million allusions to it, you know, and I knew the kind of, you know, the Moby Dick and the white whale and things like that that are used as like metaphors for things, you know, often about like, you know, sort of a, a hopeless quest or a quest that obsesses someone. Right. And I got to do a phenomenal podcast about Moby Dick with someone who'd done their master's work on on the novel and uh, her, her screen name is AKA Ahab. And we really talked a lot about the character of Ahab and how he is, you know, the very much uh, one of the main protagonists of the novel and in some ways very much a villain. In I mean, he certainly leads, you know, a whole bunch of people to their ruin because of his obsession with this whale. But also he's presented in, in not relatable ways necessarily in that like he becomes clearly deeply, you know, mentally troubled, but also the path he gets there, like – especially if you've ever experienced mental illness, is completely understandable. And he just, he became such a fascinating character to me uh, in a way that I think, you know, it is by no means the most accessible of works and the movie versions of it have never been done quite well. Um, and I kind of hope now that we just have the, 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 the CGI abilities to really, I think, do the movie right, uh, I would really love to see it done. Um, but the, the larger theme I was going to talk about was Shit, what was it? Um, <laughs> we had it here, and I just... Oh, yeah. Um, actually, let me ask you. Yeah. Have you seen the TV show The Last of Us? I have not. Okay. I, I guess I don't really care about spoilers, because it really doesn't feel like something I want to see. Okay, that's totally fair. Yeah. Uh, I think it might not be, particularly in what I'm going to say. Sure, so. yeah. I did, watch, I, wanted... I did watch the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is then parodied by... Um, What's his name on SNL? Oh, Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal, yeah. Okay, cool. 
Um, I'll find a way totally to Totally unrelated. It. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. So the one other thing I wanted to talk about, and there really is only one example of it that I used, although now I'm, I'm having another example of it. Actually, I can restart that. So the other thing I want to talk about is I feel like this year I really discovered an entirely new medium. And a lot of people – I'm very late to the bus on this. A lot of people have found this already. But it's video games. Um, I had heard and understood a lot about video games as narrative and people using the video game to tell stories in a different way. But – and. I really experienced it twice this year. One is Baldur's Gate that I've been playing. It's pretty much taken over my life. Um, a big reason why I haven't caught up on a lot of the things I wanted to see was Baldur's Gate came out, I think, towards the end of the strike. And so most of the time I used to spend watching things has been spent playing Baldur's Gate with my partner. We're now on our third run. It's just <laughs> that good of a game. And every time you – like there is a story – but every time you play it through, you can play it from different characters and thus see the story from a completely new perspective. And so that is, I think, a thing that a video game can do in showing you a story from all these different perspectives. Um, and that's amazing. But that's not – to me, I knew that could happen. I just hadn't experienced it so well until Baldur's Gate 3. The thing that really blew my mind was The Last of Us. The Last of Us TV show, I think, is incredibly dark and is not for people, but is a brilliant piece of filmmaking, you know, in TV form, but I think filmmaking is the right word. The acting is amazing. The writing, the cinematography, everything is just phenomenally done, particularly because it is not a zombie show. It is a show that uses zombies as the plot device to get us thinking about what the kind of massive trauma of you know, a cataclysmic event that wipes out 90% of the population and leaves the rest of us in this desolate hellscape, what that would do to people. So the TV show already was amazing. But then I played the video game, or, which I mean, I watched my spouse play the video mm -hmm. game because I right. don't have the hand-eye coordination for uh, first-person shooters. You, you experienced the video game. Yeah. It's not a first-person shooter necessarily, but yeah, I experienced the video game. It is a hand-eye coordination game, which I'm mm -hmm. terrible at. And... Paul has said they're okay with me not spoiling it, so I'm going to um, use some – I won't spoil any details, but just general themes. You know, if you've seen the show or the video game, you know it is about hero – it is about people doing heroic things. But the main protagonist winds up doing things that are deeply understandable and completely understandable – and probably wind up fucking over the entire world um, because of – like I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. Like he winds up the, – they get into a situation where the, 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 the girl he's been protecting this whole time who has formed this very strong bond with and this beautifully told story, um, they believe they can cure the zombieism. But the only way to get the cure is basically to drain her of blood, like to kill her. And I'm sorry. No, it's because it's, it's in her brain actually. Mm. And he finds out about this and he's like, fuck no. And he kills everyone to stop them from doing it. And in so doing, kills the only people who have any idea how. And we did a whole series of podcasts on the show and so I'm not going to reiterate it. But I think the, the game – the, the, the show and the game both do an incredible job of not clearly saying he's right, not clearly saying he's wrong, just saying here's what he does and making you be in it and – to watch it as a TV show was powerful. But in the 
game, which is like the, the thing that the game does is the story itself is completely on rails. You don't get to make choices. Hmm. You get to like play out the things they do, but you don't get to make choices. And, um, you know, we talked about how when you get to that point in the game and you realize not only is this what Joel going to do, but you have to be the one pushing the buttons as he does it. And you are compl- you are therefore kind of complicit in his story in a way. Um, it's a kind of storytelling that a lot of people hate it. And I, I totally understand because if you're really into like wanting to control the narrative, this is not for you. But the idea of telling a story about a person who's driven to do what I think are supposed to be understood as terrible things. And that's not the only thing by any means. But where you have to be complicit in that way because you're playing the character, I'd never seen someone use a video game as that kind of medium. And I thought it was, you know, maybe not the way most – I don't think – I really don't want most video games to be like that. I don't want most stories to be like that. But it's a way to use this media to tell a kind of story in a way no other media really could. I thought it was utterly brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I find – I think I find that deeply offensive and disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um. But, you know, interesting. Like, something can be brilliant and disgusting. Yeah. You know, like, like, like flying planes into the World like, Trade Center. I was like, oh, that's clever. You know, that, that yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. I yeah. mean, you know, you're killing a lot of people. I'm not a fan of that. You know, I mean, you know, that <laughs> bomb. That was a, that, that took a lot of, you know, a lot of science to make that happen. But, you know, not good. Not a good thing to do. Um, yeah, the whole time I was describing it, I was like, oh, Paul would have ab- – yeah, Paul yeah, would have absolutely no, hated I, every part of this. So, first of all, I probably – like, I would ask her. I'd be like, so, you know, how do you feel about getting murdered in order to save everybody? Like, it's your call. Right. Like, very clear. Like, no pressure. You know, it's up to you. What do you want to do? You know, yeah. like I, I believe in agency in that way. But like, if she was like, yeah, no, no, I'm not, I don't want you to let them do that. I'd be like, oh, okay, pop, pop, you know? Yeah. Like in, in the game, I think, but, you know. in the, in both the game yeah. and the show, but particularly in the game as it matters here for the agency, she has said on a number of times that she's willing to die if it leads to the cure. Mm. Um, Oh, okay. Then he's, like, he's, they, he's making a bad decision in my view. Yeah, but yeah, I, well, I yeah. think I think what is clear is that he is not doing it for her. Right, he's doing it, it for him. It, I mean, part of what it's about is how love can be incredibly possessive. Like, and in that way, it's a wonderful parallel mm. with Anakin. Sure, um, but it's also like you've seen him. He, I'm going to spoil all of this. Yeah, yeah. He has a daughter die at the very beginning of the. Sure, the, sure. So you understand like where he's coming from and whatever. Ball yeah, and, and yeah. like it sounds like a cliche, but it's incredibly well told. Sure, but it's, sure. yeah. Yeah, I mean, most cliches, like, somewhere along the line were a good story, and then people just kept yeah. t- telling the same story. And it's like, if you can do it well, you can do it well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, to me, like, the the point of a video game is, like, that you have... I mean, I was going to... When you started going to stories, I was, like, going to say that, you know, one of my other pet projects that I'm definitely never going to do... Well, not definitely, mm-hmm. but almost definitely, is, like, I feel like someone should make a... Maybe an animated series of Morrowind. You know, I mean, yeah. you could do it with like any of the Elder Scrolls, but like, to me, the, the great thing about a video game, like, you know, that one in particular is like how open-ended it can be, how mm-hmm. the, the player gets to make choices. So yeah. the idea of railroading, um, really bothers me. You know, I mean, when the other thing that I thought at first was like Ninja Gaiden, you know, which was mm-hmm. like one of the first 
games available in the U.S. to feature like a lot, like cutscenes. It might have even yep. been the first one, but like you know, there's a story. You just play through the story, but also you're just like you know a little eight bit character side scrolling. Just killing yeah. everything on screen, you know? So it's like, it's a, it's a very specific type of game. You're not making moral choices. Oh, do, well, this guy actually, I wonder his motivations. Should I be killing him? No, you just, you just stab everything, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that's a little different, but like, yeah, I, I do feel like somebody was describing to me another game where, you know, you have to do something and then it's actually like the opposite story. You know, the mm-hmm. protagonist has a character that they care about. And then they have to let them die or something in order to save everyone else. And that's the choice that they make. And I think you don't get a choice, but you have to, like, press the button, you know? Yeah. And, like, I don't know. I think that's kind of just, like, messed up and manipulative and gross. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. like it. I haven't played either game, so maybe the actual exact context of the game I might feel differently. But, like, it's certainly clever, it's certainly yeah. a way to get people to experience things, you know? It's interesting. I, I think the best way I can describe it is a discordant note. Like, most of the time, it just sounds like someone hit a string wrong or right, whatever. Right, right, yeah. But sometimes, in a very particular circumstance, it can work, you know? Because, yeah, I have stopped playing video games when I realized that I was going to have to do something I didn't, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want as a player to do or didn't believe the character would do. Yeah. And I feel like, to, to me, this was kind of the... Because, yeah, like, I love Baldur's Gate particularly because it's basically Skyrim and Dungeons and Dragons. Mm, or okay, yeah. Like, it is yeah. that. I've tried not to tell you about how awesome it is. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> I know you don't have time to really get into this and game. And you sink so deep into this. You, I'm, I, but, like, no doubt, no doubt. But, like, yeah, and, and like, yeah, that is the kind of game I love mo- so much. And that's when I realized that the on-railsness of the game is very intentional. Like, and they're using that as a way to be like, we know this is going to make you uncomfortable. Right, right. But that's because, like, it's not a, it's not a video game. It is a playable novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I think they really were trying to do, and they're like, yeah, I, I hope that doesn't become a very popular genre because yeah. I really only want to watch maybe one every three years. Sure, sure, sure. But, and only if it's done really well. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. That's the but, and the fact that the game came out probably like eight years ago and it hasn't tried – I mean, maybe there are many games that have tried to do it since, but I haven't heard of them. Well, I um, mean, the game I just mentioned, which is a very well-known game, but I won't spoil it in case okay, people fair. want to experience it. Fair. Fair. Yeah, so I think um, – yeah, that's all of 2023 in an hour and 23 minutes. Yeah, um, that was the whole year. Nothing else happened. <laughs> I'm good. Um, Paul, where can people find more of you? Uh, I guess I like tweet on Twitter – as Zen mm-hmm. Madman. And I I really hope by the soon there will be like other places that people can find me. I, I technically have a website, zenmadman.com. There's there's still not much there. But if you're listening to this sometime in 2024, maybe there will be. I don't know. You can like roll the dice on it every now and then if you want. Paul and I are talking about a couple podcasts we might launch. We are, I think, in a state of talking about it. I think we've been either creating podcasts together or talking about podcasts we might create together for about seven or eight years. So, like, it doesn't mean the new podcast is coming by any means, but there may well be some new things. So keep your eye out for that in 2024. Certainly, uh, there should be some interesting poker content coming from Paul. Of course, I'm The Ethical Panda. You can find all of my content at theethicalpanda.com or by going to True Story FM and searching for either of my two podcasts. This, the Superhero Ethics Podcast or the newly renamed Star Wars Generations Podcast, which I thought was mostly going to be me talking to two millennial or Gen Zers and them calling me an old person for the way I think of uh, Star Wars. Mostly, though, 
though it's the two of them arguing and me threatening to turn this podcast around if the kids in the back seat can't stop fighting with each other. So it's a lot of fun. We're relooking a lot of things. Paul will uh, hopefully be able to come be a guest on some some part of that podcast at some point again soon. It was so good to have you on this. Uh, but of course, you can check all that out. We love what you think. What are, what are your thoughts about what, what 2023 was all about? We'd love to hear more of them. Um, all the contact information is in the show notes on the website. And of course, the best thing you can do is become a member. $5 a month, uh, $55 a year, ad-free content, bonus content. We're about to do a bonus section about 2024. And um, also, you just get to support the podcast, and it's a, a great, great thing to do. So, on behalf of myself, Paul, thank you all so much for listening. Stay classy, Gotham. <laughs> Stay classy.